I'm J.R. Woodward. Welcome to Our Social Landscape, where my guest is anti-racism educator and writer Tim Wise. I've been incorporating Tim's work into my classes since at least 2007, so I was thrilled to be able to pick his brain a little bit. He has spoken about race issues to thousands of audiences across the country for over 25 years, and he's a frequent guest on CNN and C-SPAN and even some more conservative outlets as the leftist guy they can argue with. I'll let him give you the rest of his bio. No one else will do. So thanks, Tim Wise. Uh, would you mind briefly telling me just a little about your bio, like kind of how you got here and specifically what drew you to study what you study? Sure. My name is Tim Wise. I'm an anti-racism educator and author. Um, I, I would say activist but I, I or organizer, but I stopped using those terms for myself many years ago just because I think those are such special terms that you have to sort of earn to use. And there was the once upon a time, that's what I did. I was a community organizer for, for many years early on and an activist, but I don't feel like I do activisty stuff so much uh, as I've gotten older. So it's much more as an educator, um, uh, you know, as a writer, um, just sort of picked that lane and have sort of stayed in that. And I've been doing anti-racism work in one capacity or another for, for 31 years, ever since I got out of, uh, of college, I went to, to college at Tulane University in New Orleans um, from Nashville, Tennessee. I've lived all my life in the South with the exception of like five weeks in <laughs> Northampton, Mass, just because I was up there teaching at Smith in the School of Social Work as an adjunct one summer. So really, you know, born and bred in the South. Um, and I think a lot of, of my sort of understanding of race and racism comes from that experience. I think those of us who grew up in the South um, and are white, if we come to a place where our politics are progressive or on the left, which is certainly not a foregone conclusion growing up in the South, but if we end up there, I think it's almost inevitable that we come through the crucible of race to get there. Because I think for those of us who are in the South, it's impossible to ignore the centrality of race to everything. I think white folks, you know, in the Pacific Northwest and Midwest, Northeast, pretty much anywhere else in the country have the luxury of the conceit that says, Oh, that's y'all's problem. Meaning us. Um, Right. But, but in the South, we don't even have the luxury of that. You know, we, we know. And so, um, you know, I grew up in the seventies in Nashville and uh, eighties in Nashville. And um, I had parents who were a little too young to have been actively involved in the civil rights struggle, but they were very supportive of it. And uh, had they been a couple of years older, no doubt would have been, actively involved in it. So I was raised a certain way. I went to preschool at a historically black college because my mom wanted me to be in an environment where I wasn't the norm. Uh, Mm -hmm. She knew that I'd be going to integrated schools, which is something she had never had the benefit of. And she wanted me to know sort of what it was to be in a spot where not everybody was like you. And in the case of Tennessee State University preschool, where most of the people weren't like me. And that, that meant a lot because it meant that I was being socialized in a non-dominant environment. Most of my peer group were black kids um, it's who I identified with and the authority figures at the school were mostly black women. So I was learning to respect black authority at the age of three and four mm-hmm. in 1971, 1972. Um, and I dare say that whether we're talking 1972 or 2022, there are not a lot of four-year-old white children that are ever subordinated to black authority even now. So it was an important lesson because 20 some odd years later, I was doing community organizing and public housing in New Orleans. And the, the women who sort of ran those communities in terms of the you know sort of civic leadership of those communities were black women. And I, I've learned to respect their authority and their wisdom um, in a way that allowed me to hear 
when they would tell me what was going on um, with race, with class, with with you know the housing community and and the whole sort of political and economic reality of New Orleans, I could I could listen to them and believe them rather than say, well, you know, are you sure you're not seeing things? Because maybe you're hallucinating. Because again, twenty some odd years later, I've been encouraged to to listen and to trust. So that's sort of the the short version of the story. I was raised right, um, taught to see certain things, put in put in situations where I was more likely to see things. And then of course, going to college in a place like New Orleans, where uh, Tulane is a plantation in the middle of a black city. Um, you, you can't help having had the background that I had, you can't help, but see the contrast and start to make certain connections. And, and I had some really important mentors, mostly black folk, but also white allies uh, in the city that helped me make those connections, perhaps in moments when I didn't want to. So you know, so right after college, I, I started working in the first thing I did really was the campaigns against David Duke, former Klan leader, neo-Nazi white supremacist when he ran for Senate and governor in Louisiana. So 1991. And, um, you know, it was it was uh, we knew it was important at the time. I think those of us who were involved in those campaigns understood the the that the threat of Duke was not just him, that there was this broader problem that at the time we referred to as Dukeism. But really, it just meant sort of race politics, the use of racial scapegoating as a way to manipulate voter sentiment and convince, you know, white people that their enemies were black and brown folks. Um, and although Duke lost, you know, those campaigns, he did get the majority of the white vote in both elections. He got 60 percent in the Senate race, 55 percent in the governor's race. And it wasn't because people didn't know he was a Nazi. Everybody knew he was a Nazi. Um, and yet they still were willing to pull that that lever for him. A lot of people in this country wanted to make that into an anomaly and say, well, that's just Louisiana. Y'all are different. Um, you have this so-called jungle primary where everybody runs at the same time and the top two vote getters, mm -hmm. you know, end up in the runoff. And that tends to reward more extreme candidates because you don't really have party primaries to filter them out. But we said at the time, you know, just wait around a minute. Now, little did we know, you know, that 30 years later, we'd be grappling with Dukeism on this national stage repackaged as Trumpism, you know, right. somebody much more dangerous than Duke, because at least with Duke, you know, you have pictures of him in the Klan garb and you have pictures of him with the swastika and you 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 know that he's connected to the overt neo-Nazi movement. And Trump sort of has that plausible deniability, right, yeah, of, right, of not being that guy. And so race politics, you know, whether it was Louisiana in 1990 or the United States of America in 2020, or really at any point in the last 400 years, going back to the colonies, obviously works. Mm -hmm. That's why people keep using it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's mm -hmm. been the lesson of, of professionally, the lesson that I've learned over the 30 years that I've done the work. Yeah, that was, wasn't that um, correspond about the same time as the Willie Horton ad, the George, was it? So the Horton ad, right. The Horton ads in the 88 campaign. 88. So they, okay. they so run that in, uh, yeah, in the spring of, and the summer of 88, I guess, right before the 1988 election. So you know, race politics had had clearly been around before Duke. Uh, and in many ways, Duke just sort of picked up on what campaign, you know, uh, uh, sure. folks had been doing. And, and in the case of the Willie Horton ad, I mean, that was, you know, Lee Atwater and right, right. Atwater worked with Roger Stone. I mean, all these guys, you know, have been sort of recycled generation sure. in and generation out. But, sure. you know, they had been doing this for a long time. Reagan did this uh, in 1976, the first time that he ran for president. Uh, went on the campaign trail talking about strapping young bucks, buying T-bone steaks with food stamps. I guess I guess T-bones were a big deal in 76. It's not quite, it's sort of pedestrian now. Yeah, so exactly. we've, had to, we've had to change the culinary. We had a culinary upgrade. Now it's king crab legs and, right. and uh, Play you know, or something. salmon with red pepper coolis or whatever. But, 
But um, back in the day, it was the T-bone. He told stories about welfare queens picking up, you know, welfare checks with 15 names and 32 social security cards. And all this was made up. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was just nonsense. But it was an example of using race politics. And Lee Atwater famously in 1981 is on, you know, on tape. You can listen to it on YouTube right now saying, you know, in the 50s, you use the N-word and it, you know, gets you where you want to go. But by 1968, you can't use it anymore. Gets you in trouble. So you have to talk in code, you have to say states' rights, and you have to talk about welfare and crime and busing and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's all just a game. And he admitted it was a game. It was a game he played for many, many years Mm -hmm. and finally regretted on his deathbed. He died of cancer, uh, I guess, in the early 90s. But so Duke wasn't unique. but But the difference was that Duke moved the envelope even further to the right, because here was a guy who um, was so fundamentally committed to a worldview of white supremacy and white nationalism. The other guys just sort of dabblers in that. I mean, I think, I think they, they were racist. I'm certainly not suggesting that they weren't, but it was a very different kind of racism. It was this implicit white nationalism, just sort of this, well, of course, America is a white nation. Like I'm sure Reagan would have probably felt like, well, yeah, of course. Right. Like that old California Republican party politic was all rooted in that. But but David Duke was like, no, man, like we mean it's a white nation where the rest of y'all just got to go. Like we 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 just don't even intend for y'all to be here. Oh, and by the way, the Jews are running it all. Right. So, I mean, he added all of these elements to what had been around for a very long time. And that pushed the envelope even further. Right. Because if you can be a straight up Nazi and get six hundred and seventy five thousand people to vote for you. And you know they're not 675,000 Nazis in the state of Louisiana, but there's 675,000 white people and like two black dudes because there's always two, right? right? Look at that and they're like, well, shit, I'll just vote for him. So at that point, if you're Pat Buchanan, you know, the next year in the Mm -hmm. during the presidential election, you're thinking, well, damn, I can get away with all kinds of crazy shit because I'm not even a Nazi. Like that guy's a Nazi and he got almost 700,000 votes. So then Buchanan does his thing. Then Trump comes along and it's like, well, hell. Mm-hmm. Buchanan, who said some really wacky stuff before, and David Duke, he did that. I can really go, you know. And yeah. so, so now the stuff that is considered, that would have been considered overtly fascist 30 years ago, just like unacceptably fascist in the 70s, which I don't consider, I mean, I lived through the 70s. Progressive I don't era. consider those to be an incredibly progressive <laughs> period in American history, but stuff that would have been completely verboten. Now it's just sort of like, oh, yeah, man, that's just mainstream stuff because all of these people have pushed and pushed and pushed and really sort of perfected the use of race politics in everything that they do. As a white person studying race, do you think there are advantages or disadvantages to that? Well, there are very clearly advantages to it um, in the sense that, you know, those of us who are white and study race or talk about race or do activism around race, obviously will uh, tend to reap the, the benefits of presumed legitimacy uh, and presumed objectivity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I say something um, about race, it's probably not something that is completely unique, unless I'm talking about my personal life experience. Uh, all the stuff that white people say about race, even when it's really insightful, has no doubt been said by a person of color. And probably ignored uh, by people because white folks have been encouraged not to listen to black and brown folks. So there's obviously privilege and advantage uh, in this field, just like there is in any other field, um, which we have to acknowledge. And I think we need to be accountable for. And I think we need to be willing to admit and, and then 
you know, help steer people not only to our own words, which we want people to read. I mean, those of us who are writers, I want people to read what I write. I want people to come to my talks, but I also hope that they'll dig quite a bit deeper than just that. I don't want I don't want Tim Wise to be the authority on race for white people. I, you know, it's like if I, I'll be a gateway drug for anybody, but then I need you to, you know, I need you to go deeper than that. And I need you to read other stuff and I need you to go to other people's talks and I need you to sort of expand your horizons just like I did. You know, I, I learned to listen to a lot of different kind of voices over the years. As far as disadvantages of it, I think the only disadvantage of it is that you're, you're starting out with such a facile understanding um, uh, that unless you're really fortunate to have like the upbringing that I had, for instance, um, you're always going to sort of be coming at it from a secondhand, almost academic place. And one of the things that makes that problematic is that I think, and I've noticed it a lot in the last year since the uprising in the middle of 2020, was a lot of new white folks, you know, were surging into the movement after George Floyd, which on the one hand is great. Uh, On the other hand, what concerned me was it was a lot of white folks who I feel were coming to their anti-racism through politics, right? So it was all part of their larger politic and their and their anger at Trump and all, which is totally justifiable. But the problem is when you come to your anti-racism through politics, I fear that it's likely to be more transient or more or more conditional on what the political situation is. So like, for instance, as long as Trump's in power, oh my God, there's a fascist threat. We got to do something. Then as soon as he's vanquished, it's like, oh, thank God we can breathe easier now. Well, black folks know that's not true, but I fear that white folks who come to their politics, come to their anti-racism through politics, it sort of waxes and wanes. It's like, so Obama's in, okay, we're good for a minute. And then, and then Trump's in, oh, it's awful. And now Biden's in and it's good for a minute. And black folks are just like, it's the same shit we got to deal with all the time. Like, yeah, it's a little better or a little worse, but we don't change our approach. We don't change our analysis, but I sense a lot of white folks do. Whereas for those of us who come from, who come to our anti-racism through lived experience, we don't get really knocked off stride by that. Right. Cause so I can, if I'm coming to my anti-racism because I saw the way that my black friends as children were treated, I came to it through that it was stuff I was seeing. And so the stuff that you see always has a different resonance than the stuff that you read about. I got all these books behind me and I'd like for everybody to think that I, I know we're not doing video on here, but um, uh, if people were watching the video, they'd see all these books. I'd like everybody to think that I've read them all. That's not really true. I just collect books and I hopefully one day I'll read them. But even if I had read them all, that would not be the source of my understanding of race. That would help inform my understanding of race, but it's really the personal experience. And I think sadly, most white folks don't get that story. Like when I tell that story about going to a black preschool and playing on black ball teams and being surrounded by non-dominant, non-white env- in non-white environments as early, that that's just, that's very, very rare yeah. um, for most white kids. Interestingly, when I do talk to white people who've had that experience, they talk about it very similarly to me. Sure. Um, and I think that, that that is the disadvantage is that we're coming at it. It's almost abstract. Mm-hmm. And when something is abstract, it's a lot easier to let go of and get distracted by some other shiny object, you know? Right, so right. it's like, well, I'm, t- I'm talking about race now, but Oh, look, look at that thing over there. And I'm going to yeah. go do that. You know, it's just, yeah. that, that's a bit of a disadvantage. Okay. So let's see. I was just reading something about your January 6th, uh, one of your blog, recent blog posts about the January 6th, you know, we just had the quote unquote anniversary, whatever you want to call it. Um, And you say that those, uh, the people who are involved in that need to be 
kind of crushed as a political force is how you wrote it. It's kind of a perversion of justice, but I always want to read that. I'm like, well, what would, who's going to do the crushing? Like who's going to do the punishing? It seems like a Fox guarding the chicken coop kind of thing for me. It is. What do you think about, how do you suggest that happens? Yeah. I mean, I, I am always, you know, I say these things and I mean them. But I'm also uh, clearly, you know, because of my experience with being on the left for 30 plus years and and knowing the history of, you know, state infiltration of activist organizations, I know who that stuff gets used against the most. And it's not the 3% militia and it's not the Oath Keepers um, and it's not the Proud Boys. Proud Boys yeah. So I'm always... I'm always hesitant to to happily endorse the idea of the state crushing um, dissent, even when it's dissent that I really find objectionable. That said, um, I know, first of all, I know they do these things. I know that the state does these things. I know the state is going to have spies in BLM contingents. I know they're going to have spies in various Antifa contingents. I know they're going to have spies in the Proud Boys and and whether or not I, I think that's a good thing. I mean, I'd rather most of the of the infiltration and the spying, if you will, be done by non-state entities. I actually think what's interesting about tracking down the insurrectionist is most of it has been done by online sleuths. Most of it's been done by independent, uh, some Antifa, others just researchers who have been able to actually identify people and then turn them over to authority. So actually, I, I'd prefer that. I would love it if watchdog organizations could be the ones that would do the exposing, right, that would that would let us all know who that shitty colleague is of ours. And I'd rather that than the state, um, mm-hmm. personally. Okay. But and if And if that can happen in a way that exposes these people and results in their being crushed as a political force without having to have the state do it. That would be fantastic. At the same time, look, there is no constitutional right to advocate the overthrow of the United States government. There just isn't. There is no constitutional right to advocate imminent violence and the murder of your political enemies and the subversion of the Constitution. You don't have the right to foment insurrection at the Capitol or to talk about uh, hanging the vice president or to uh, or you shouldn't have the right to, I think, encourage violence against any elected official. Mm-hmm. And I think if that needs to be adjudicated uh, to make it clearer as to what the First Amendment does and doesn't protect, then, then we should do that. But I mean, even now, there are limits on freedom of speech and freedom of association that um, uh, that involve, you know, crossing a line where one is advocating violence, where one is advocating the overthrow of the government itself. Um, and I have no problem applying that understanding of the First Amendment in a way that would limit the ability of people to engage in insurrectionist and terrorist activity. Do I know that there's a possibility that that could be abused and used against my side? Yeah, but my guess is that's going to happen anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so I, I think the problem is if we're not willing to talk about the right as terrorists and label them such because we're afraid, for instance, the label will get used against us. Well, the label's going to get used against progressives and the left anyway. The danger is not making sure that it's also applied to the right, because if it's not, then we're the only ones being labeled that way. And the other side is able to skate by without having the narrative switch or 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 without having people think of them in that same light. So I'm not I'm not you know, there's an uneasiness that I have about it. But at the same time, like I do think the state has an obligation to prevent the overthrow of the state in the name of fascism, the idea that we have an obligation to tolerate fascist. 
uh, seems to me foolish because these are people who acknowledge that if they ever took power, they would crush the rest of us. You know, the Constitution, free speech is not a suicide pact. Right. The Constitution right. is not is not an agreement to kill oneself in the name of some principle. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is only as meaningful and as workable as as uh, as we make it operationally. And if and if the other side takes over and acknowledges that they would crush free speech, I mean, they acknowledge it now. You know, when Trump was in office, his people were telling him he should turn the tanks on CNN. He should you know mm-hmm. shut down the press. I mean. So the idea that it's like, well, we'll just we'll just let them do this and then, you know, and then we'll complain and take them to court. No, like preemptively, they need to be smashed. Whatever one thinks smashed means, I'll leave it up to the interpretation (laughs) of others. Uh, I think that they need to, you know, fascist. I don't know the historical example of fascist ever being defeated by spirited debate. I just don't know of an example. Maybe there is one, but every example that I know of uh, where, where, where fascist and authoritarian or totalitarian forces exist, I've yet to see them persuaded out of their tyranny uh, and out of their fascist tendencies. The only way that I know they've been defeated was either, frankly, through violence, which I'd rather not uh, endorse and see happen, or at least by the committed actions of, of others using you know, power and levers of power against them. Uh, other than that, and I feel if we don't do that, it is going to end up having to be violent and that's going to yeah. be far worse. Yeah. Uh, in one, that lecture we mentioned a minute ago, um, I think it's called the pathology of privilege. Yeah. Um, you made some interesting connections between race and social class with your discussion of New Orleans after Katrina, uh, the yeah. lower ninth ward, Chalmette, you know, perished that inch that that's a pretty hot topic in my field and many others, you know, the race and class. I have a colleague who doesn't like the term, for example, white privilege, because he thinks it alienates whites and working class folks of yeah. all colors need all hands on deck to push for economic change, kind of. So, you know, on the other hand, you experience race differently depending on your class. Yeah. You experience class differently depending on your race. So right. uh, what say you? Can you tease out the, the, the dynamics of race and social class here? Well, the term white privilege is obviously a fraught term, just like any term is. Um, and it's not perfect. Um, but, you know, the way I look at it is this. Um, and I, do, I look at it differently than some in my field and others uh, in the movement. Um, and I'm certainly more willing to be nuanced about it than some are. You know, I do acknowledge um, the intersectional nature of identity. And so as a result, yeah, clearly whiteness looks different if you're male versus female, if you're rich versus working class, if you're if you're gay or, or, you know, if you're LGBTQ versus straight or cisgendered, if you're able-bodied or disabled. I mean, obviously. Um, that said, there are some general truths about being white that exist and that are real, uh, both within the class system, but also in ways that are not necessarily connected to the class system. Um, and even working class white folks are able to access those within the confines of the class system. So when other things are held constant in social science terms, Race matters if you're a white working class person when you because after all, white working class people are competing for stuff against black working class people and brown working class. Obviously, they get their ass kicked by the rich. That's how the class system works. But if you're a working class white person, you ain't you ain't competing for a job with a rich person, white, black or otherwise. You're not competing for the same university or med school slot, probably as the as the more affluent person who's had all these perks and advantages. But in the class system that exists, you will still be favored. And the research on that's really clear. We have old boys networks and blue collar professions. We have old boys networks that have kept black and brown folks marginalized within unions. You know, so so white privilege still exists. Does it look different? Absolutely. The way that I conceptualize it is is the way that W.E.B. Du Bois and others did, um, which is to say 
that um, and Du Bois was both a Marxist, but also someone whose analysis was was clearly about race, um, which is that white privilege has been, for lack of a better way to understand it in relation to class, it has been the transmission belt of what Marx would have called uh, false consciousness. Right. So it's been the thing. It's been the consolation prize that working class and poor white people have been given by the elite uh, so as to not rebel on the basis of their class status. Now, some very traditional Marxists would rather us just ignore that consolation prize or just call it that and then move on and talk about class. The problem is it's a significant consolation prize. When you don't have anything else, this, this currency known as your skin will get you through the day. It will provide what the boys called the psychological wage of whiteness. Now, you know, the dirty little secret is psychological wages don't pay hospital bills, don't pay mortgages, don't pay rent, don't put your kid through college, but they will allow you to feel superior to someone else. And on a psychological level, that is oftentimes enough to get you through the day, especially if you're sitting there as a working class white person and you're thinking to yourself, God, you know, man, you know, I could join with my black and brown brothers and sisters and fight for better wages and, and universal health care and all this. But damn, that's going to be a hard fight. And that's going to take a long time. And meanwhile, you know, I already got this one thing, this white thing, or maybe even, you know, I'm a man, so I've got masculinity or I'm a Christian. I've got that because that's also a thing or I'm straight I, or I'm, a, I'm an American and I speak English, right? We have all these identities that are dominant that we have. And the last thing you want to do in a country like America, this hyper competitive, we're number one kind of place is to admit your identity when you're getting your ass kicked. You want to stay, you want to dwell in the place of your dominance, right? So if you tell me, man, you could have a better deal as a worker, we don't even want to identify as workers. We don't even use the term working class. Everybody's middle class, whether you're making 20,000 or 200,000, you call yourself middle class. Well, that's insane. Why? Because we don't want to identify as workers because we know workers are the losers in the class game. We know that. And so we want to identify as white, as male, as straight, as Christian, as American, as English speakers, whatever the hell, right? Yeah. And 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 as long as that's true, white folks are going to continue. If I'm if you think of whiteness as like a highway and or you think of like the class struggle as a highway and off in the distance is is the end of the class system and justice. And but there's this off ramp to whiteness. It's like shit. Oh man, I could take I can get this off ramp and yeah, it'd probably be better down the road 20 miles, but I'm sort of hungry and I got to pee now. So I'm just going to get off now and just take advantage of whiteness or take advantage of the off ramp to masculinity or the off ramp to Christianity. And you can't finesse that. You can't just talk around that. You know, during the anti-Duke stuff, I had really sort of hardcore Marxist friends who would say, you know, we shouldn't even talk about Duke being a Nazi. That's no different than red baiting. Well, yeah, it's way different than red baiting, actually. Okay. But 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 they would say that and they would say, we just need to go into the unions and tell these white working class guys that they'd be better off joining with their black and brown brothers and sisters and fighting for better wages. I was like, good luck with that, man. Yeah, you, yeah. you go do that and you tell me how that works, because I'm going to tell you right now, even if that's a long term strategy, that ain't going to work in six months. And that's what we have before this election. That ain't going to work in two years. That's a long term. You're embedded in the union. You're organizing day in and day out for 20 years strategy. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, these folks are on the march right now. So you've got to confront it. And one of the things that I think we can do, and Ian Haney Lopez and others have talked about this um, uh, with their race class narrative project, this idea that um, you don't want to just focus on white privilege and race for sure, because you lose people that way, no doubt. 
But you also can't just do the Bernie Sanders, let's just talk about the millionaires and the billionaires and finesse race piece either. You have to figure out a way to combine them. And the way that Lopez and others have talked about it, which I think is genius, is and they and they field tested this with focus groups and, and they got you know social science to back it up, is to talk about the way that race and racism are used as deliberate weapons to divide people from understanding their common interest. And and Mm -hmm. so it's fundamentally a class argument. Mm -hmm. It's talking about the way race is used, you know, to, to divide people who have similar class interests, but, but he's, but he's not saying finesse it. He's saying, call it out. You've got to actually mention it. You've got to say, Hey, here's what they're doing. Do you see what they're, that's what we tried to do with Duke Mm -hmm. in 90 and 91, particularly in the 91 election. We started talking about that more. In 1990, we didn't. In 1990, we took the advice of a bunch of high-priced consultants that said, oh, you got to be careful about talking about him being a racist because you don't want to trigger racist into, into identifying with him. So you should talk about the fact that David Duke dodged the draft in Vietnam, which is like the only good thing David Duke ever did, right, was <laughs> dodge the damn draft. But they're like, no, you should talk about that. Or maybe that he paid his taxes <clears throat> It's like, really, you're going to it's just like talking about Capone cheating on his taxes. Like if I go in front of you and tell you that there's a Nazi who didn't pay his property taxes, your response is going to be like, well, he can't really be a Nazi then. Right. Because if you were, you'd be talking about that. So so it's a stupid strategy. And they and that's what they told us to do in the first year. He damn near wins because that strategy was a losing strategy in 91. We decided, screw that. We're going to be honest. We're going to talk about the way that he manipulates the public and lies about the source of people's pain in order to get votes. And even though he still got the majority of white votes, he was, you know, two things happened. Number one, the numbers of white folks dropped a little bit. And secondly, the number of black folks that turned out went through the roof because they felt like, well, we're actually speaking to their concerns. And we were finessing race. Black folks were like, we're out. We're not, we we, we can't even take this seriously because y'all don't want to talk about what's real. But in 91, we talked about what's real and we got people focused on it. Mm-hmm. That's what we have to do. So it's not about saying we're going to talk about race all the time and not talk about class. It's not that we're going to talk about class all the time and not talk about race. It's about making clear that for 400 years, going back to the colonial period, the oldest play in the book, the oldest play, it's the very first play in the colonial playbook, really, is to create the perks of whiteness, um, which, you know, don't even have to be that big if you're poor. That, that's the eye. Like if you're rich, whiteness is just extra. Right. Like if you're rich, whiteness is what we in Louisiana call land yap. It's just a little something extra. You don't even need that shit to get you through the day. You got enough money in the bank. But if you're poor, that all of a sudden takes on huge significance and people can play you like a fiddle, which is what happened to white Southerners in the Civil War. You know, poor white folks were convinced that they had to go fight and maybe die to maintain a system of enslavement that they didn't even benefit directly from. Right. Right. right? And, and so there's a whole long history of this and we have to be honest about that history, even though that means sort of telling folks, Hey, listen, we've all been fooled. We've all been suckered. Right. And nobody likes to admit they've been a sucker, but you know what? They'd rather admit they were a sucker than admit they were a racist. So I'm willing to, to, to give you that grace and say, do you see what they're, you see what they're doing? Like Trump is just doing the thing that, Reagan did, that Wallace did, that, you know, Strom Thurmond did, the thing that the colonists did in Virginia in 1676 after Bacon's Rebellion, the same shit that Jefferson Davis did. Like, it's the same thing over and over and over again. And uh, and it continues to work. And it's Mm -hmm. why we can't have nice things. (laughs) That's right. Thanks. That's great. That's really good.
So let me step back and kind of ask a broad question here. Um, and I'd like to tie in perspective from a few other folks that I've, I've talked to. So if you could just roll with me for a minute, I'd like to give sure. this question adequate background. You know, you've mentioned a lot of different issues in your writings besides race to healthcare, environmental racism, environmental issues, COVID-19, et cetera. And I've been thinking for some time what brought us to this place as a nation. It's got, you know, I've kind of been on my mind for a while now. So I've, on one hand, it seems like a really crazy time we're living in now. So uh, I interviewed Claire Bond Potter, professor who writes a lot about the role of uh, the rise of alternative media, particularly yeah. on the right, having an impact. Um, Willie Vlaughton, who's a musician, talking about his mom's boyfriend in the day, some uh, working class dude who hated unions because he loved Rush Limbaugh, you know, so like wow. that kind of supports it. Right. But then again, other things have never been perfectly smooth. So Dave Zirin, the sports writer for the nation, uh, told me in the context of sport, at least the cornerstone of sport is the myth of inclusion and the reality of exclusion. Yeah. And I think that can be extrapolated out to society at large. So maybe the roots or the soul of the nation, whatever you want to call it, haven't really changed. It's just manifesting differently right now. So that leads me to a quote of yours. So here we go. So you were writing about COVID-19, but it could probably imply, apply much more broadly when you said, ultimately, the toxic combination of racist indifference, hyper-individualism, and cynicism about the public good is what has brought us to this place. So with that lengthy intro, what is the link between racist right. indifference, hyper-individualism, and cynicism about the public good? So, um, you know, I think some of that will be more obvious to, uh, to some listeners than others, but I'll take them in order. So the racism piece um, is, and I wrote a piece specifically on that. All my writing is at, is at timjwise.medium.com for people that want to read it. Um, there's a piece in there um, that I wrote several months back last year that has to do with the race piece. And, you know, the argument there is pretty simple. If you look at the early iterations of COVID, when we when we as a nation started to really hear about this thing, was in March of 2020. It's when we first shut down the country, sort of temporarily, and shuttered businesses, and uh, sort of went to masking and distancing and all this. And uh, in those early weeks, what we found out by early April was that that first month, month and a half of death and illness had been disproportionately Black folks in large urban areas. It was New York, it was Chicago, it was LA, et cetera. Um, and that data hits like the first week of April, that makes the news, right? We finally have confirmation that that's who's being hit. And I don't think it's a coincidence that within a week of that news hitting, you have the president saying, we got to get everything back open. We can't continue to be shut down. It just It's just an indifference, right? I have no doubt that if that headline had said white people are disproportionately dying, or, you know, rich people, because it was also working class or or mm -hmm. otherwise healthy people, because it was people with pre-existing conditions. Or if it had said, you know, younger people when it was disproportionately old, if it had said any of those dominant groups, but especially white people, I have a feeling the reaction of the country and the country's leadership would have been very different. It would have been like, holy hell, I can tell you for sure these white guys, white boys in camouflage are not going to be showing up with their semi-automatic weapons demanding the right for themselves to die. Right. Mm -hmm. right. They, they were willing to go fight for the right to not put a mask on because they figured they ain't going to die. They read the headline. The headline said it's black people in New York City. It's brown folks in the Bronx or whatever. So I don't have to worry about it. And, and so there was an indifference. So we just we took our foot off the brake too early because people thought it's not going to affect us. Well, the irony is by the end of 2020, those numbers had begun to shift and all through 2021, they shifted. So in the early month and a half, two months at the beginning of covid. Yeah, like. Only 28% of the deaths were white people or what the census calls and what CDC calls non-Hispanic white people. So what Nazis call real white people, right? 28% um, 
uh, uh, were white. By the end of 2020, it was 55% each month were white. And now it's over 60% of the total have been white. Uh, and, you know, 62% of the American population is white and about 62% of the deaths have been of white folks now. So, you know, the irony is the, the racial indifference led us to sort of slow walk this response. And then the irony is, you know, at the end of the day, it catches up with white people yeah. and we'd have been better off taking that shit seriously when it was killing black folks. So that's the first piece. Yeah. The hyper individualism piece, I think, is relatively easy, right? It's the <laughs> don't tread on me. How dare you tell me to wear a mask? What are you going to put me in a concentration camp next? <laughs> what you want me to wear a mask on my face? Well, you're obviously going to push me into a gas chamber because that follows. You know, they just sort of assume that Dachau is the next stop uh, after the Trader Joe's asked them to stand six feet from somebody in the produce department. Yeah, um, yeah. And and so that hyper-individualism, that, that, that individualism that's just really about, I just want to be left alone and do whatever the hell I want. I don't have to think about the consequences of, uh, to anyone else, obviously implicated from the very beginning in this thing, just sort of not people not wanting to take the most minimal precautions to protect others. Uh, or even understand why it was important, you know, to to do that. Um, and then the third, the, the discrediting of the public good and the cynicism around public uh, government action uh, is the last in the in the in the three part stool of that. And and it's the huge. argument there is, you know, we've had forty years, fifty years of a very active campaign by conservatives and neoliberal uh, politicians to discredit the notion of the state doing anything to help people, you know, mm-hmm. and it begins with, of course, um, sort of Barry Goldwater in 64. And it's not not a popular opinion at that time, because you still got lots of people that have reaped the benefits of the New Deal yeah. uh, 20, 25, 30 years later. And they remember that and they're not ready to give that up. And they still believe that government can do things. You know, the highway program had just begun in mid 1950s and they, they saw you know, there wasn't this anti-government fervor per se. Uh, you know, the top tax rate in 1957 was 91%. Huge, yeah, huge. Nobody nobody complained. It was like, right. and that was because they could see, could see tangible benefits. But really the last big thing that government had done was Medicare and Medicaid uh, prior to Obamacare, which again, really is a private system uh, policy, much more so than a state system. Um, and, and after Medicare, right, there's this concerted effort to discredit the state, to say the government action either is inefficient and wasteful, so it won't solve the problem that it's intended to solve, or it'll even create new problems, it'll create dependence, it'll do this, that, and the other. And so when you've got 40, 50 years of that narrative, and then the government comes along and says that they're going to respond to a public health emergency, it becomes a really hard sell because you don't think the government can even get your mail to you on time. Which now, first of all, it's a public-private sort of yeah, hybrid. Yeah. The USPS people don't quite understand that. And the but person more running it, yeah, right? And the person running it. running it, right? It was actually doing pretty good, <laughs> you know, by comparison for pretty cheap <laughs> until certain people were put in positions of authority over it. But right. but that's the thing: we have this cynicism about the public, and so if the and and it's so much so that when you say like when Obama briefly talked about a public option in. The Affordable Care Act. That was the thing that got because public has been, and this goes back to race too and class, has been associated with the other, right? <laughs> Anything public we think of as being for black and brown folk and for poor people of all. So what what is it? Public schools? Well, who just goes there? Mm-hmm. Public transportation, who rides that? Right. Who, who, who's in public housing? Right. All the whenever you say public, they have these negative connotations of either waste or inefficiency. If I ask people, what's the prototypical example in our country of inefficient, wasteful, time consuming uh, laziness? People say the DMV. And yet I know people, as I say in that article, 
who have spent weeks of their lives on the telephone arguing with insurance companies to get lab work covered under their health care plan, that's a bureaucracy too. That's inefficient as hell. That's wasteful as hell. But we don't say, mm-hmm. oh man, you know, the Blue Cross Blue Shield is the example. Or we right. don't say like, you know, whatever healthcare company, we say the DMV. Mm-hmm. And so we've got this cynicism about public responses to stuff, so much so that now we just don't even think of the public good at all. We, we've got everybody trying to, you know, the, the self-help industry, the sort of personal empowerment industry, which is the, you know, one of the biggest selling genres of books and and videos, right? Everybody trying to tell you, eat this, take this supplement, take this vitamin, do this exercise routine, drink this smoothie, get this particular kind of exercise bicycle, because you're on your own. You got to take care of your own. There's no public health, man. There's, you know, Margaret Thatcher famously said there is no public. And people at the time thought, what are you, what are you talking about? You're making no sense. But that's sort of the mentality of the West now, mm-hmm. as led by the United States and the UK, at least, which is, yeah, you're sort of, you sort of got to figure it out on your own. So you've got to protect your family because you can't count on anyone else to do it. And you've got to, you've got to take care of your health because nobody's coming in to save you and you need to eat better. And that's why it's so easy to blame people when they end up in the hospital with COVID. Cause we assume if they had a pre-existing condition, see, that must be their fault. They did something. Right. They weren't eating right. They were drinking too much. They probably smoked. They didn't exercise. You know, why, why didn't you, why didn't you go to CrossFit lazy? You know, that's the mentality. Cause we've just sort of dispensed with, the notion of public responsibility altogether. And when you have all of those things, you have the racial indifference, you have the hyper-individualism, and you have the cynicism about the public good and public responses to crisis, whether that's a hurricane or whether that's you know a pandemic, um, this, is, this is where we end up. This is where you know? we end up. Yeah, I think about with the, uh, the AMA, you know, the American Medical Association and their, their spokesperson, uh, Reagan, you know, vehemently fought Medicare, Medicaid, when they were yeah. coming out, and they ended up benefiting from it because in the old days, if a poor person couldn't pay, you just didn't get paid. At least you got right. some money now from the government, you know. So it, it actually right. served them better. But oh, absolutely, we're, absolutely, yeah, definitely yeah. against it. So what do we do to fix that, Tim? How do we uh, switch this narrative? How do we move this back towards? I don't know if we've ever even been there, but back yeah. early heading towards something that's uh, more compassionate and equitable. Well, you know, I I was hopeful at the beginning of this pandemic that there would be this sort of flowering new narrative where people would start to really wake up to that. And I think some people probably have, but, but it's real obvious that we are, um, we're in a place right now that none of us, I think, who were trained in political science or sociology have really been trained to understand. There's always been this sort of assumption in both of those fields poli more than sociology, because sociology to me has always been more real, more realistic about power dynamics than political science. But um, but in both in both disciplines, especially poli sci, there is an assumption of people as rational actors. Right. Um, and so everybody's sort of competing, trying to get their interests served, but they're doing that rationally. And, you know, that's sort of an econ thing, too. And political science has become more. Um, like economics as a discipline, I think, over the last 30 or 40 years in particular. So there's that assumption. Well, that assumption flies in the face of what all social psychology tells us. It flies in the face of what most schools of thought within sociology tell us. We're not really rational if, well, we are and we're not. We're not in the way that the critics of that are, like, 
The econ 101 folks think you're being irrational if you do something. And the political scientists think you're being irrational. But actually, there's rationality to hoarding resources as white people. It's not rational on a class level, but it makes perfect sense on a race level, or it makes perfect sense on a I'm a Christian level, or it makes perfect sense as men who are dedicated to patriarchy. So it's it's we keep saying, well, why do they act against their interests? But that's assuming you know how people define their interests. And sometimes people define them differently than you. And you have to understand why that is and what are the devices that are leading them to do that. Until we can figure that out, it'll be very hard to dig out of that hole. Additionally, we're not um, what we what we're missing is that I don't think it is possible any longer to believe that any sort of set of policy ideas or self-interested benefit in the traditional sense, as in, I'm going to get you better health care, as in, I'm going to make sure there are jobs for everybody, as in, you know, chicken in every pot kind of stuff. That stuff used to drive politics. Uh, I think Democrats still believe that's how people are making decisions. And, you know, two years into the Trump administration, we had clear evidence that that wasn't true, because I remember I mean, if you didn't already know it, I remember reading a Washington Post piece. They had gone, uh, researchers had gone out into central PA and uh, they were asking people in central Pennsylvania about sort of how their lives had changed, if they had changed. It's shortly before the midterms in 2018. And and they asked, you know, like, well, asking Trump supporters, well, what what has changed? You know, have have you gotten a better job? Your wages gone up? Have the have the factories come back to town or the companies that boarded up, have they come back? No, none of them have come back. And in fact, two of them just closed last month. I mean, things were just getting worse, but all of these people were 100% committed to voting for Trump again and, and supporting him. And when it really came down to it in this article, the answer was when they said, why? Well, he hadn't actually done anything for you. And they're like, yeah, but he stood up to those damn NFL ball players that wanted to take a knee. Right? Kaepernick, right, right. It's all that symbolism stuff. And as long as people are, if if your politics are no longer guided by your your personal family's best interests, like what's in your bank account and whether or not your kid can go to college and whether or not you can afford health care, but instead it's all about these symbolic owning the libs things. Like it's all about you hate the people I hate. You Mm -hmm. resent the people I resent. So I'm going to throw my lot in with you, even if things never get better. If Democrats don't understand that, and I don't think they do, they're just going to keep saying, well, let's just talk more about, you know, a universal broadband access in Nebraska. (laughs) The fuck? Like, 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 you know, well, let's just, let's just talk about the infrastructure bill and build back better. None of these damn people care about build back better. They, right. they don't care unless you're building back on black people's heads and brown people's heads and gay people's heads and non-Christians heads and excluding them. You know, it's like, it's like, I think, I think there's this, this, it's almost like people heard the build the wall thing and thought that that was like support for an infrastructure plan. Right. Like it's not about building. It's not the building part that they like y'all. It's the wall part <laughs> that they like, but, yeah. but, but we're so committed to that idea of politics as rational based on self-interest that we don't understand people are defining their interest in very different ways. And unless we figure out a way to break through, and I don't know the perfect way to break through that, but I know that if you're going to break through it, you have to call it out. You have, you have to point to the manipulation. Like if I'm going to expose, if I was, if I was watching a magician in Vegas, if I'm watching Penn and Teller and, and, or some other magician and they're doing sleight of hand and they're doing illusions, um, I, I need to point out the illusion. 
right? In order to, in order to break the magic. Like I have to actually, I can't just talk around the illusion and be like, well, that was pretty amazing how they made that person disappear. But can we talk about something else? No, I need to actually make sure you understand that that shit was not magic. Like there was a trick involved and, and I'm going to try to point it out now in the case of Penn and Teller, I can't do it because they're just really good at what they do. Sure, sure. But, But that's the trick is you have to actually say, you do know this is a, this is a game that's being played, right? Mm-hmm. And and I'm not sure that that'll necessarily crack the code, but I do know that the attempt not to call it out, right. the attempt to say, well, let's not let's not talk about what they're doing. Let's just talk about what we're gonna do for people. Like nobody gives a shit, right? Right? Because looking- because the people that they think you're connected to and affiliated with are people that they do not like. Right, because right. they're people that they feel threatened by either culturally, religiously, demographically, sure. racially, ethnically, yeah, whatever. You, you think of MAGA, you know, the the Make America Great Again. It's like, well, when was America great in their minds? You know, so like they go back to Leave It the Bieber days, right? Well, like you said 91% tax rate. Government was huge, right? It's right. not small government. Like, right. what do they really want to go back to? Well, women knew their place, you know. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, I had that conversation I mean, it's like, with this- it's clear. I had that conversation yeah. with a Tea Partier back in 2009. I I, I had been on CNN or uh, yeah, one of the CNN. One shows of those things that. you do. <laughs> and I'd made that point, and I said, you know, um, something about America was never great. And the next day, you know, I, or I said something about how that whole slogan was racist because it ignored what things were like. And the next day, I got an email from this woman who said, "That's not racist. We're not talking about going back to the." segregation part. And the and I said, well, tell me what part you are talking about then, because I'm curious. I said, first of all, I need you to give me a year. So when you say, because uh, back then they didn't say MAGA, but what they said was, uh, we want our country back. That's what it was in the still see it. Yeah, you still see so it. That's what I had said the night before was that whole, we want our country back is racist because they're ignoring what back was like. And she said, no, that's not what I mean. I said, well, tell me, first of all, what year are you talking about when you say you want to go back, back to what? And I knew in my and I scribbled on a piece of paper as I'm as I'm asking, as I'm writing this on my email to send to her. I wrote down on a piece of paper what I knew her response was going to be. She, you know, she wasn't going to say 1903 before the income tax. She wasn't going to say 1811, you know. She she wasn't going to talk about before indoor plumbing. She she said 1957, as I entirely anticipated that she would, because that is the year Leave It to Beaver started. Oh, okay, yeah, 50. Um, yeah, of course, it, Leave It to Beaver also premiered one month to the day uh, after the Little Rock Central High School crisis. Oh. Um, so we have that picture of Elizabeth <laughs> Eckford being yelled at by Hazel Bryant, um, famous, you know, uh, sure. uh, award-winning photograph. And literally a month later, there's June and, and Ward and Wally and the Beave, you know, <laughs> waving. Right. And and so she says 1957. And I said, well, that's interesting because tell me what part of 1957 you liked. I said that, you know, the tax rate was 91%. You, you want to go back to that? Because I don't even advocate going back to 91, man. That's like, that's like hard. <laughs> yeah. like, you really want to go back to 91% top rate? And there were like 14 brackets that in 1957 were above anything we have now. So I'm like, you really want to go back to that? Wow. And, and I knew her answer would be no to that. I'm like, well, so it wasn't that. So government was huge. Like we had just right. started the highway yeah. program. I mean, yep. it was big. Like we spent shit tons of money and all kinds of stuff. So we had high taxes. We had lots of government spending. What part do you, and she never answered, of course, because sure, the sure, only sure. answer is the hierarchy part. The cultural you like part, yeah. the cultural hegemony of white, Christian, straight, male-dominated culture. 
And um, even if they're saying they don't like the segregation part, they don't realize that that part is the part that they like. Like, like they do like the fact that their lives were these bubbles. They talk about sock hops and shit. Like, you know, my father-in-law graduated in 1957 and he was, he was in the first rock and roll band in, in uh, he was founder of the first rock and roll band in Nashville history. I'm sure for him, it was like super exciting. Now he actually, you know, understood and he, he borrowed heavily from black music and appreciated black music, but I'm sure that that for if you're if you're white in 57 and you're going to the sock hop and you're playing the rock and roll combos at the house party whatever i'm sure but like but do you understand you're living in that bubble that protects you from having to deal with all of the other shit in the world right. so even though you may not be consciously thinking to yourself what i love about this is the segregation like no probably <laughs> you're not thinking that probably the the problem is you're not thinking about segregation at all Because you're not having to think about it. And that's the issue is that you were so insulated from it that you could actually believe that those were the good old days. You know, Ted Koppel just did this thing where he went to Mount Airy, North Carolina. Right. Uh, (laughs) Which is which is uh, the 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 prototype for Mayberry. uh, Okay, I didn't know that. Mount Airy. And yes, that's where Andy Griffith, I guess, was from. And that was the prototype. Mount Airy is also where my parents were married, oddly enough, um, <laughs> which uh, given the trajectory of their marriage, it just shows nothing particularly good comes out of Mount Airy. <laughs> but um, uh, although I guess I did in some indirect in way. Some so maybe, indirect way. Yeah, right. I say that. But, but they went to Mount Airy and, and, and there's Koppel or whatever talking to the people of Mount Airy um, about, about Trump. And about January 6th, and, and they're all like, oh, we're not bothered by January 6th, and, and it doesn't bother us. And they're talking about America being, you know, this, this sort of the good old days and the sort of the pace of their lives and how wonderful it is. And that'd be great if we could just get back to that. And I mean, I think that I think if you were to put them under sodium pentothal and give them a lie detector test and ask them if they love segregation, they would say no and they'd pass. But I think that all that speaks to is that they they believe, first of all, that you can separate the way their lives were from the way other people's lives were. And that's not how life works. Your life was better because Because, other people's lives were worse. You had more because they had less. Now, I could make the argument and I would they would have been even better off if we'd had equity. But in relative terms, they were elevated above other people. And that's what allowed them to have the new school with the resources. And that's what allowed them to move out into the suburbs, which begins in earnest in the 1950s and, and 40s and 50s with FHA loans. Like you, like you remember that and because that was created for you. So you benefited from that. And that was specifically explicitly an act of racial aggression and oppression that no, you didn't clamor for it. You didn't ask for it. You probably never gave it two thoughts, but that's the problem. And that, and that's what I think is, is the issue with us as a country is we have no historical memory at all. And when we try to add some historical memory and context to any of these contemporary conversations, people lose their minds because to them, that's you're, you're, you're besmirching the history of the country. You're, you're disrespecting America. You hate America just for telling this part of the story that really is not debatable Mm -hmm. from a historical perspective. It's, it's, it's not really arguable. Mm -hmm. Um, It's pretty basic, but to say it labels you as some fanatic, right? Because we've never heard that before. I never heard about redlining before. I never heard about the Naturalization Act of 1790, which said only white people could be citizens. So if I never heard about it, 
when you tell me about it, that's like you're trying to tell me that America was founded on the basis of racism. I'm just telling you what they did. I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you what the law said. Like, you can go read it. That shit is on Google. Like, Google it. Look it up. And it's and it's the first thing Congress did. Like, they got into session after the Constitution is ratified. The very first thing they did, they could have done anything. They could have raised taxes. They could have figured out the army in case the Brits came back and want to have another run. They, they A lot of things they could have done. And they didn't do any of that. They said, no, 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 no. We got this constitution in place now. First order of business is let's make clear that we tell everybody who this thing is for. This is for white people. And they put that in the law. So I'm not saying that America was founded on the basis of white supremacy. They're saying that America was founded on the basis of white supremacy. You can take it up with them. Take it up with the first Congress. You know, take take it up with them. It's not me. I'm just telling you, I'm just describing some stuff to you. And there's not really, you can't read that law and dispute that characterization. The words are very plain. They had no shame about it. So they just said it. They didn't feel the need to couch it in anything. They just said free white people and only free white people can be citizens. And it took, you know, uh, uh, 75 years or whatever, 80 years to to get that changed. Um, I don't think 600,000 dead. You know, I I don't think our governor has read that here in Florida. Uh, Ron Death Santis, we call him, uh, you know, really against which is fascinating because he went to Yale. Yeah, I know. He's a smart dude, right? He's a smart dude. Surely they uh, covered it. I mean, here's a guy that 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 anti-critical race theory. We don't even teach critical race theory in the state of Florida, but now there's a law against it, you know, because it makes white people have feel like they're bad and that they're racist. And 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 really all it is is uh, well, it's not even critical race theory. I mean, critical race theory actually taught properly. which I think should be taught, actually. I, I, you know, mm-hmm. I think a critical race frame is actually really important uh, as true. one of many frames. I don't, I don't think it should be the only frame, but I think it should be taught. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 the the thing about the critical race frame is that a, everybody I know in, in the world of critical race theory, and I, I consider myself a critical race theorist, all the founders of critical race theory, or most of them are either friends or colleagues of mine. I was friends with Derek Bell. Friends with Kim Crenshaw. These are people who I consider my mentors and and teachers in many ways. They would all be very quick to point out, for instance, and they do point out that white people are not inherently racist. That's the argument that's used against critical race theory. Usually white people are inherent. No, critical race theory says white people aren't even a thing. Like it's just some concocted bullshit. So how can white people be inherently anything when whiteness itself only has a 400 year history? There's no such thing as inherent anything, it's all socially constructed and, and manufactured. So if anything, right. critical race theory is 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 the opposite of that that's being accused. And every critical race theorist I know would also want us to study the, the, the history of white allyship and solidarity. Because if you actually are concerned, for instance, that anti-racist education makes white people feel bad, you know what the best antidote to that is? It's very easy. Make sure that these young white kids learn that there are white people throughout history who stood up against racism. That'll take care of that problem. But if the only white people you're teaching about are Washington and Jefferson and and Andrew Jackson Jackson here and a bunch of slave owners and Indian killers, then, yeah, yeah, they're going to feel sort of shitty because you're teaching them about the wrong white people. Mm -hmm. But there are white people throughout history. Herbert Aptecker's book, Anti-Racist, Anti-Racism in U.S. History, the First 200 Years great volume that talks about going back to the colonial era, white folks who stood up against white supremacy, against enslavement, against genocide of indigenous peoples. Now, granted, 
That wasn't the majority. And I don't want to overstate the case. But the fact that there have always been white folks who said no Mm -hmm. means that a white people are not inherently oppressive. No, it's learned behavior. And and, and if it's Mm -hmm. learned, you can unlearn it and you can be like these people. You can have different role models. And B, it means that contemporary white folks need to learn about those anti-racist whites in history because that's the only way they're going to know they have a choice to make. Otherwise, they sort of either go the route of oppressor or at best they sort of sit on the sidelines and they're like, oh, good, Rosa Parks and Dr. King, and I'm so glad they're doing this work. But then they don't take any ownership of it for themselves and they don't feel the need to engage it themselves. So critical race theory done properly actually would inspire white people. And let's be honest, that's why they don't want it taught. Right. Sure. It's sure. not that they think it makes white people feel bad. It's that they're afraid that if you actually talked about American history accurately, including talking about white anti-racist, then these young white folks would be like, oh, you mean I could be that? And see, they don't want them to be that, mm. particularly in the era of the post-George Floyd uprising. You don't want right. young white. We already had millions of white folks join the movement in the last 18 months. You don't want more of that. Right. So right. one of the ways that you make sure you don't get more of that is you don't give them any role models like that. You mm-hmm. want to stick with the Jeffersons and the Jacksons and the Washingtons, okay. not mm-hmm. just because you think they're the great men of history, but because you actually prefer the example that they set when it comes to things like race and class and gender and those things. And and, and wow. if you teach them about Anne Braden and you teach them about Bob and Dottie Zellner and you teach them about Jeremiah Everett, John Brown, the sisters, <laughs> yeah. all these people, John Fee, you know, they're they're going to they're going to get they're going to get frisky and they're going to try to join with black folks to change things. And you don't yep. want that. Right. Yep. Real quick, what's going to happen in 2024 or midterms oh, to Trump? Trump coming uh, back? No, I'm, I'm going to apply for asylum somewhere. Uh, probably uh, I'm going to have to uh, go underground. I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm bad at prognostication. All right. um, Fair enough. But I, I, I think it's a very open question. And I think we should be prepared for the worst, you know, hope for the best, be prepared for the worst. You're, you're not going to get the best, whatever the best case scenario ain't going to happen. I know that right, 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 um, right. the worst case scenario doesn't have to, but we're going to have to get very, very serious. I think about um, uh, pushing back as hard as the other side, you know, if they're showing up at school board meetings and yelling at school board members about masks and critical race theory and, and trans folk who they trans think are going to molest their children yeah. in the bathroom. We've got to be in those school board meetings yelling back. We can't just sort of sit. It's not enough for us to sit back on Facebook and be like, can you imagine these awful people going to these meetings? Well, if they're the only one showing up at the meeting, they're going to get their way. They're going to run for those school board positions. They're going to take over those state legislative positions. Progressive folks have got to get serious about running for town council, city council, school board, state legislatures, because that's what the right did. You know, the Democrats and liberals well, yeah. and progressives focused on getting the presidency for all those years. That was the thing. When Reagan was president and Bush, it was like, we just want the presidency back. And meanwhile, these folks, they just took over state houses. And, yeah. you know, now we I live in Nashville and, the, you know. Nashville can't pass um, living wage legislation because the state of Tennessee came in and said, no, you can't do that. We won't let you. We tried to pass protections for LGBTQ folks on on city contracts. No, you can't do that. We won't let you. We tried to pass a requirement that contractors in Davidson County, 40 percent or something, have to live in the county. The state said, no, you can't do that. So we've got these right wing state houses that are telling the blue areas of their states, which, by the way, are the only reason they have any money. 
Like right. we're, we're like the cities of the metropolitan areas. Ain't nobody coming to Hohenwald for tourism. Like they're not coming to, to, to Bucksnort, Tennessee or going to the Portland Strawberry Festival. Right. They're coming to Nashville. They're coming to Memphis. They might be going to Chattanooga to climb a mountain, but they are not going to these little out of the way. They're not going to look at grain silos and haystacks. Right. right? right. So if it weren't for Nashville and Memphis, we wouldn't even have a damn state. If it weren't for New Orleans, Louisiana would be Mississippi. Sure, right. Sure. And, and and if it weren't for Jackson, Mississippi would be even worse. And if even it weren't worse. for Oxford, another blue bubble in the middle of that state, like the blue areas are the only areas that are the engines of anything in these areas. And they're being told they can't they can't be blue, quote unquote. They're being yeah. told they can't be progressive because the state is. And the only reason that's possible is because 30 years ago, Democrats made a decision. They were more interested in having a president, whether it was Bill Clinton or Barack Obama or whoever it was, than they were maintaining you know, some state presence when in fact state politics matter because then they're the ones that draw the damn congressional lines that we live with nationally. So, okay. So you don't have to add, this is the last thing I had to say, but, uh, and this is, this can be off. It's a personal question. It can be off record if you want, but what keeps you going at this? Like, do you get bitter, angry? Like, how do you not phone it in doing this after all these years? I think, you know, the easy sort of cliche answer is my kids. Um, you might have a similar answer being right. a father, I've got a, a 20 year old and an 18 year old and um, and I see them developing deeply their consciousness. And I also see them desperately worried. Uh, and so, you know, um, so I, I, I have to maintain some sense of not hope because I think hope is 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 empty, but but some sense of potential uh, for something better to come. Um, even though I have to remain agnostic about it because I've never seen what justice is. So I have to wait and see. But um, but the other thing, I guess, is, look, I, I, black people don't have the option of like phoning it in. Right. You know I mean, like they don't really have the option of saying, well, I'm sort of tired of dealing with this shit. So I think I'm going to do something else this week. Like, <laughs> eh, you know, and so if black folks have to keep at it, uh, even though every now and then they might need an R&R, they might need a little break. I mean, everybody's got to have a vacation and take some time away and get their head straight. But if, if black folks have to keep at it and brown folk have to keep at it. Um, uh, on a race level, if women have to keep at it on a, on a sex and gender level, if, if, if LGBTQ folks have to, poor folks of all colors, then who am I uh, as a white, straight, cis, upper middle class male to be like, well, I'm having a rough week, you know, I mean, like, you know, like, I mean, I have plenty of rough weeks, <laughs> you know, and my therapist gets to hear all about it, but, sure. but, but I don't have the right to just be like, well, I think I'll just go bowling. I mean, nothing wrong with bowling, but after I go bowling, I got to get back to it. You know, I can't just be like, I'm gonna go bowling forever and just like never do anything <laughs> again um, <laughs> because I just haven't earned that right. And, and part of being alive, you know, I did a piece the other day that's on medium, uh, after Archbishop Tutu died. And, and, and one of the things I did anti-apartheid work when I was in college in the eighties. And, and, and one of the things there was a whole rigmarole involving Tutu because Tulane invited him to get an honorary degree. And we sent him in his office, a bunch of material saying, Hey, by the way, you know, Tulane is still invested in apartheid South Africa. So you might want to say something about that when you come, well, he did better instead of coming and saying something, he just said, I'm boycotting the whole damn thing. I'm not coming. So it's a big news story. And he sent me a note, a personal note, um, as the director of that organization and founder, because we were all sort of, we were excited about the fact that we'd gotten him, you know, this big news coup. He was boycotting. It's a huge story. Yeah. We all yeah. got on television, talk about it. It was a big, yeah. big thing. Um, but, you know, Tulane didn't divest. It didn't, it didn't force their hand the way we hoped it would. Sure. Summer came and they were going to wait us out and they figured we'd come back next fall and the movement would be weak and they'd just do the same shit they always did. 
So I was sort of dejected and I went to clean out my, uh, my campus PO box. And there was a letter from the archbishop. Um, uh, and he, and it was almost like he was reading my mind and the minds of others of us for knowing that we would be dejected, knowing that we weren't really clear on how long a struggle this was going to be. And he said, you know, uh, and I quote him in the article, he said, uh, you don't do the things you do because others will necessarily join you in the doing of them or because they will ultimately prove successful. You do the things that you do because the things that you're doing are right. And I remember, you know, at the age of, at that time I was 19, at the age of 19, being told by someone like Desmond Tutu, you you just, you just do it because it's the right thing to do. Like it's the simplest, most banal advice. And yet it's also incredibly deep. Like it's, it's, it's both obvious and clearly not obvious because we live in a very transactional culture where we don't do anything unless there's a payoff. Everything is sort of a grift. So if I, you know, think that my activism isn't going to pay off, I'll find something else to do. And what he was saying is this, this is not about that. Right. Like you have to, you know, James Baldwin talked about it as earning your death. Mm-hmm. Um, and Derek Bell talked about it as, as, as being redemption and struggle. Derek Bell, critical race theory, father of that said in, in faces at the bottom of the well, that he was pretty convinced that racism was a permanent condition of American life. But, but he didn't, he did not say that and then follow that up by saying, and as a result, I'm going bowling forever, right? He, 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 he went ahead and continued to struggle until the day he died because there was redemption and struggle, even if there's not, even if you're not going to win, you want to win, you want justice, but this is not really about that. This is about how do you earn your, your death in Baldwin's terms? How do you justify your life? Um, and once you take on that mentality, which is non-transactional, then burnout's really not likely. You don't get burned out because you because you know there's no finish line anyway. Right, so you right. just say, well, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. You know, yeah, it, yeah. it's sort of that's just, yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. I guess that's all there is to tell. You've been listening to an interview with Tim Wise on our social landscape and I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, please take a minute to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. Thanks to Tim for carving out some time. He's a busy dude, and it took us a few months to actually work out a time to get together. I asked him for 15 minutes, and he gave me an hour and 15, so I'm grateful. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the interview, and I'll remind you that one of the purposes of this blog is to engage in public sociology. For me, the goal is to engage academic and non-academic audiences in critical discussions of social issues that are typically confined to the academic world, but it doesn't work if I'm the only one talking. So please feel free to sign up for the blog and become a member, which simply entails creating a username and password. Then you can comment after each post. At the very least, please feel free to email me your comments, and I'll be sure to respond. I'll post a link to Tim's work on my page and tell you that the music was played by the late New Orleans piano legend, James Booker. Finally, if you're feeling so inclined, you can push the yellow donate button on the homepage. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at jr at our Thanks for listening.